So, good evening and welcome to uh, Queen Mary's College, Basingstoke. Thank you for joining us this evening uh, for our annual IBC review. Um, on the panel tonight we have Martin Parsons, my far left, who's uh, founder and CEO of Image Eyes. I uh, have Neil Maycock, VP of Global Marketing for Grass Valley. Uh, Kieran Gorham, VP of Global Sales and Marketing for Pixel Power. And Russell Traffic-Jones, uh, Manager of Support Services for TechX. So if I can uh, just start by um, getting general impressions. Uh, so what was the, the one big thing that stuck out for you? Uh, start with you, Russell. Um, I mean, for me, I, uh, I thought that the push for extra diversity was really good, and that does stand out. Um, I think it's really important. Uh, this year, overall, I think there's been a large push um, across the industry. I've noticed an, an uptick. And from a technical point of view, I think the time of um, purely software-defined applications where there is no real hardware, there's lots of new startups um, pushing that, including some um, you know, existing, well-established manufacturers. For me, those are the two things, really. Okay. Kieran? Yeah, I'm going to talk about the increase from, I think, the IBC quote, there's a 14% increase in women being involved in the conference up to 37 um, a great start. But the one big thing on the technology side, I tried to, you know, when Tony sent us these questions, um, I sort of tried to look at it from a completely different point of view to the area that we're involved in in Pixel Power. Um, and the thing that jumped out to me was blockchain. And I know it's a buzz, and a bit of me thinks that we're probably with the blockchain technology sitting somewhere around 1995 equivalent of the dot-com era. And in the next couple of years, we're going to see a dot-com boom and then a bust maybe with blockchain. But it was just interesting that there were a couple of speakers. There was a keynote, I think, on the Friday of the conference. And then there was another session on the Monday, which I find the title of it quite interesting. Um, uh, I think it was Disrupting OTT. And I thought OTT was the disruptor. But actually, blockchain <coughs> being used as an opportunity to be a disruptor within the OTT, which is a disruptor within other types of markets. So that whole area that blockchain is, is starting to forge into other markets outside Bitcoin and the buzz that that, that creates around the world, I, I thought was an, an interesting one. Okay, well, at some point we'll come on to blockchain and what actually actually means. Uh, Neil? <laughs> well, something I think we're going to talk more about, but it was the attendance numbers. So there was a slight drop in overall uh, registrations, and I think for IBC to admit any kind of drop means it's <coughs> maybe more than the official figures. Um, yet the conference is growing, and I, I'm really interested to see whether we're reaching an inflection point where the emphasis in terms of how we engage with customers is shifting from exhibition floor to conference, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And uh, Martin? Um, it's interesting to see how the technologies, new technologies, have matured slightly. Um, I, I say slightly, the dynamic <coughs> range was everywhere. Um, but both at the capture side and the, on the display side. Um, so people are getting geared up for it, but of course, really, we only have Netflix and Amazon streaming it, though I think Sky and BT Sports will be premium channels, HDR, this football season, probably mm. next year. And then the new technologies coming in, and again, people paying attention to them, especially machine learning. I hate to call it artificial intelligence, because... It is just repeated learning by machines. Yeah. Um, here, here. <laughs> well said. Uh, we'll come on to that in a little while. But um, on the subject of diversity, I, I, I did hear a rumour that one um, vendor 
who I don't know who they are, and even if I did know, I probably wouldn't mention it, um, had a little bit of an issue with diversity because they had some uh, young ladies on who were dressed inappropriately, some suggested. And then the next day they came back dressed appropriately on the booth. So uh, I think that is um, sort of indicative of where the industry is going in, in terms of diversity and, and people are now taking it more seriously, which is uh, good. Um, so the infamous number of days, I think each year we talk about how many days uh, IBC should be run. Um, and should it be four or five? Neil, you've got a bit of insight on this, I think. Yeah, so um, I'm... Uh, currently a member of the IBC Council, which is an advisory body to IBC. It's predominantly from the customer side, and then they have uh, two, three vendors, and we get cycled through every year just to fit in. And there, there was a discussion about four or five days, and interestingly, the customers on the council outvoted the vendors to keep it at five days because they preferred it. So I, going back to my earlier point about the balance between conference and uh, exhibition, one of my big frustrations is that as a vendor it's really hard to participate in a conference because it starts the day before the exhibition. We're all busy finishing our booths, doing our press conferences, our sales training. It's like the, the busiest time for vendors. Then we spend fortune on these booths. We've got to leverage every minute of the show. We can't afford for our people to go off to the conference. But the conference is gaining in importance and in customers' eyes as well. And I think the thing I've seen as being part of the council is there's a lot that goes on at IBC off the show floor that I think most vendors are completely oblivious to. I certainly wasn't until I got on the council. And I, so one of the things I proposed to IBC, and I, I don't know whether they'll go this direction or not, was what if we offset the conference to the end of the exhibition, not the start, so the vendors get their busy period out of the way, and then we can participate more actively in the conference and, you know, maybe spend a bit less on the show floor and spend a bit more sponsoring conference sessions and some of the, the, the other events that go on. And I, I, I was really curious, so rather than going from four to five days, sorry, five to four days, which I don't think will happen because of that vote, I was interesting just a show of hands whether people thought shifting the conference to the latter part of the show, which I also think would stop the dead last day where there's tumbleweed in the aisles as well, whether people thought that might be a, a sensible solution. A show of hands, who, who thinks it's a good idea? I like it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. Make it so, Mr. Maycock. I've copyrighted it, so <laughs> I can <laughs> make it so. <laughs> So you heard it first here, next year we'll have... Um, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I pitched the idea, I didn't say you can make it happen. Uh, so you get plenty of support for that. Yeah. Gary? No, I support that, absolutely, because, you know, uh, it might sound a bit rotten, but I think 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have been as, as interested in the conference, and it wasn't just the area that I was working in, it was the, the attraction of the conference, I think, has grown significantly in the last five, seven years, um, and they've done a, a, a sterling job in getting some top speakers in there, some subject areas which are uh, breaking edge. Um, and I think what your suggestion also offers to the vendor community is the opportunity for our technologists who are sitting way in the back. They're not salespeople. They're not going to be propagandists. They're people who come up, come up with the ideas that the broadcasters need to hear about in order for them to think about the ideas they can then use over the next few years. And so I think shifting is like that also then gives us the opportunity to engage without even sponsorship, but actually getting 
uh, the vendor community uh, out there speaking in front of those broadcasters as well. Mm. Well, I think if we're going to if we're going to use the, the argument to reduce the show that that last day is not so useful, it's a bit defeatist just to say, well, well let's give up, let's let's try something to actually reinvigorate that. That exactly what you proposed is, you know, if we don't try that, then I just think it's you know, just not thinking about the, the topic. Yet. Martin, <coughs> I think. Um, if you reduce the show from five days, and I quite agree, Tuesdays, people travelling out, and uh, other standholders able to look at the competitors, you know, because the, the show feels so quiet. But you have to be careful that, I think, on that fifth day, that Tuesday, if you lop it off, the Monday doesn't become the new Tuesday. Yeah, so that's, that's the risk. I think it's because everybody feels you know, it's close as a form, yeah. and watches on a quick beer, and... But I think you shouldn't under, understate the value for, for vendors of that last day to actually speak yeah. to the other vendors. Yeah. I'd agree, and I would be very careful about that because you know, we find ourselves in the last few years very busy on the last day. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of when you've got a smaller organisation, um, you're trying to fill everything. You're trying to fill every date that you possibly can. And there are customers there on the last day. There may not be as many, but you can schedule appointments on the last day. But what we also found is that there are system integrators and system architects who have their own boots yep. around the show. And you know, the likes of QVest and, and Danmon and all those people don't get off their stands to get to see the vendors. And Tuesday is a good day for that. Good. And what about the, the uh, argument of whether IBC should exist or not? Have we, have we got beyond that now? Are we fairly convinced IBC should be a show? Or, I mean, what, what does everybody else think? Do you think, uh, I mean, there has been a suggestion over previous years that these trade shows are just all going to be on Skype um, or WebEx or something. I mean, is, is that real? Is it going to happen? How many think it's going to happen if you raise your hand? Good. <laughs> Um, I, think I, I, I think we've got a, a small industry and we've got yeah. two points in the year where a large proportion of the industry comes to one location yeah. and I think it would be a sh- real shame to lose that but I think what IBC is and what NAB is it probably needs to evolve from exhibition and probably other forms of engagement with, with so our more audience. than just market stores for instance exactly, the product supermarkets dying and yeah. we need, the shows will evolve into other other forms of engagement, the conference being more important, I think. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, when you say the conference is more important, is that so that people can showcase their products or showcase new technology? I, I think with the amount of change in the industry, it's about the, it, there's a real education requirement for people to know what really works. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to hear particularly from vendors because we'll tell them everything works. <laughs> but um, you know, what, what really works, case studies, and then some of the sort of breakthrough stuff that we can sit here about on the horizon and get some context around that. So the brief bits I saw, I found really useful, but can participate so little. But it's that education. <coughs> because um, you can find out about products on the internet. You know, yeah, that's yeah. it. If you're looking at uh, actual product box or, or software, often you're finding customers coming with the internet information to hand and knowing more than than some of, our, some of our staff do mm. on the stand. And so that's not what the, the, the show's about anymore. It, there's, I think, an element of trust is what well, it's often been about that, you know, looking into the back of somebody's eyes. Um, can they trust you? Can their people trust your people to deliver? And that's why it needs to be face-to-face. There does need to be that. But you're right, there needs to be less of the, the nuts and bolts or the cranks and camshafts type of exhibition showing the bits. You know, if you liken it to the days of... Um, the, the 
the car industry or motor industry, which everybody likes to do the analogy with, you know, it, it's about transportation. It's not about the vehicles anymore, and that's the same in our industry. Right. It's not about the jump in the middle. That will evolve and that will change, yep. but it's about getting content to end customers and looking into somebody's eyes and how they can actually help you and trust you to do that right. is probably the most important thing. Because okay. Martin, I'm just thinking about HDR for instance, it's very difficult to demo HDR over a WebEx, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Unless you've got an HDR yeah. laptop. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this again, the, having the. Uh, yeah, the other things, it's not just about the stands. I mean, there's the focus groups. I got invited to an Intel and Dell focus group. Um, there's, I don't know, a dozen and a half people just talking about what they, what they were using the, mm. the, the products for. And that's in one of them, those little rooms that are along the corridors, which I find fascinating. Yeah. You know, what's going on in here? I went to um, to see, I just walked through um, part of the uh, part of the Y and, they, and Google were having um, just an open discussion with a bunch of people about um, Android TV. So it's the things you stumble across as well as you know, just going around the halls. I think there's a lot happening that we're so preoccupied with our booths leveraging that very expensive asset. If we could spend less on that and then engage in the wider activities, I think IBC have been doing a really good job. Mm. I think we have poor visibility of some of the stuff that's going on. Mm. Russell, um, I, I absolutely think that uh, you know, the fifth day is, is critical, and mm -hmm. um, you know, we should be uh, doing whatever we can to to uh, do more with the floor. I don't know specifically what rules there are, but. Um, the more we can merge the two in the conference, um, yeah, the better. Does anybody have any questions on um, IBC? Okay, so I do. I was going to Yes. Do you think that the, the, the weight and size of IBC sometimes gets between the vendors and their customers? <coughs> in the run-up to IBC, I, my inbox is always full of IBC telling me what to think, and I can only read so many mailers or. Uh, IBC telling you what to think or vendors? IBC. So IBC, the, the, the marketing interest. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the entity, because the show is, what, what everybody forgets is the show is paid for, lock, stock and barrel by vendors. <coughs> Everything else is ancillary. And um, I find that, you know, IBC, I, I've, I've almost got that fear of missing out all year. They're hitting me with all sorts of other events and forums. But really, it's all about that show. And do you, do you feel the vendors struggle to get through the, the, the weight and noise of IBC itself? Is it eclipsing you as the advertisers, as the exhibitors? I don't find that it's eclipsing us. Um, I don't think I've ever found I mean, IBC 365 and the whole marketing from IBC has grown tremendously in the last few years. And so, yes, there's an awful lot more noise. In one sense, we do talk about, is it? we do have the discussion, is it good to put news out now, or is it just going to get lost in the noise? And sometimes that is the case, and so you wait till after the show. In terms of us getting our message to our customers, no, I think we we do a reasonably decent job of getting the message to the customers. My worry is that, there's two worries. One is that you know email marketing, whilst everybody still talks about it as being um, the, the be-all and end-all, you know, we've all got these these days, and you know how many milliseconds it takes to simply swipe and delete. Um, they disappear. So it is difficult to get your, your message through. Where I thought you were going with that question, Russell, was the, the issue of IBC being so big and so important on the calendar that it becomes a barrier between vendors and the customers in, in real life. 
in that from about July, August onwards, it's actually hard sometimes to get vendors to concentrate on a customer's job. What well, we've got IBC in the way. We're preparing for IBC, can't, I can't do this, can't do that. You phrase and my question better. Yeah, that's what I mean. And that, that, is, yeah. that is a real problem. Because as you say, every, all the vendors are spending a huge amount of money and therefore want to get the return on that investment. It's very tough to justify the return on that investment. Um, if you measure it by marketing or by um, sales leads found, sales leads found with existing customers, new customers, all that measurement is really good. But it does hit, you know, a good six to eight weeks in advance of yeah. the show, and then you've got NAB at the same time, and then you've got the recovery period afterwards. Yeah, but I, I, I think sometimes the vendors are their own worst enemies as well. And you know, I, I, I did the NAB review uh, earlier in the year, and I, I was saying it was my my aim to dramatically reduce the amount of equipment we took the show, and we reduced it by sixty percent, mm-hmm. and we we actually almost marketed that and some customers thought it was a good thing. And you couldn't, I, I, I don't think you could tell, I ran a competition with the sales guys to tell me which of the product areas didn't actually have any product and only had three PCs. Because um, it was virtualized in the cloud, which apparently is a good mm-hmm. thing we've been telling the world. <laughs> we did it ourselves and hey, it works. Um, but that took something like 20% of the cost out of our booth by reducing all that equipment and the, the booth itself was just as effective. So that frees up money for other activities and other marketing. So I think vendors, if they defocus trying to rebuild a TV station on their booth sometimes, <coughs> that would help and put the, spread the resources to get better engagement with the customers, I think. Well, I mean, I think it's an ongoing battle that we've always been faced with um, and I don't think it's really changed um, you know, we still need to get people to uh, listen and it still remains a challenge there are more ways of doing it and um, you know, the rise of things like IPC 365 are intrinsically connected to the vendors so it's actually another way of getting your message out if you can afford to sponsor it you can afford to um, you know, if you have the right news at the right time to get a story in and obviously I'm a fan of the, uh, the webinars, which in general are very good, uh, which happen throughout the year. So I'm in favour of that, that continuity throughout the year from the IBC. Um, and I think that that's an opportunity for vendors as much as it you know, does that to the noise. I have seen a few companies now move away from what the IBC wide centre to, say, the Nanora Hotel. And then they, they have a suite there and they'll demo there, possibly because of the overheads of, of having a stand at IBC. But it is all there, it's all in one place. And the thing is, you know, you need the full five days to get around everything. So we tend to kind of pass through the beach bar. <laughs> and then people will say, well, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And there's a little kind of unofficial gathering. People will go off to, to see what their peers have, have found okay. as, a, as a bit of a filter. But it, I think that's actually a central part of the show. I tried a personal experiment about three or four years ago. I thought, I've had enough of this. I shan't go. So I didn't go to ABC. I stayed at home and mowed the grass and did things like that. And I regretted it for the rest of the year because I hadn't realised how much soft information had arrived. The beach bar and all the conversations you meet with people, people you haven't met before and then meet and then carry on meeting. And it's about the ideas and new thoughts coming. It's not just about the kid. It's how you put it together. We're going through... the new change of technology. It's not analog now, it's this other thing, it's the ST something. 
And I'm learning how it works. You know, I could sit down with a massive manual, but actually I'll learn, just like I learned the analogue all that time ago, as much from the people doing. <coughs> and of course on the back of that, by the beach bike, you've got all the boats that are taking people yes. off. And a nice captive audience. Yeah. Yeah. And they're taking them off somewhere nice to have some um, cocktails and a bit of food. But it's interesting um, who you meet on those boats, especially if you just jump on, not invited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so beautiful leading us on to um, the ST stuff, the IP infrastructures. Um, I mean, I, I think IP is definitely here. We've, we've gone over the past few years from it's a nice idea to now it seems to have gathered enough momentum to be actually making it work, or at least that's my view. Uh, I mean, what's the view of the panel? Are, are broadcasters now moving to IP? Who should we start with? Martin. Well, I went around the uh, Bloomberg installation in the city for, with the Simpty um, summer visit. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And yes, you know, the real proof of the pudding was to go into the machine room where there was hardly any video cable. In fact, it just seemed to go to various monitors. Um, because, you know, they have yet to have, or most of them have yet to have an IP input. Um, so it works, and if you're building a, a, um, a video-based television station uh, or news organisation, you definitely want to go down that path because of the cost, the flexibility, uh, and, and the uh, flexibility for upgrade. In post-production, however, you've been already working with files, so right. you've already got that, that there. Because Post has had IP for quite some time, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But what about distribution of video um, between post houses? I mean, you know, at SDI, is that being done on IP now? Um, yes, some of it. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, but yes, you don't really play out. Well, I don't know. When I, mean, I used to work at, at um, NHK in London, we used to play out video to uh, to the town, of course, to be rooted. But mm -hmm. uh, that's a, that was back in the seventies, so. <laughs> late seventies anyway. Russell, what, what do you think about IP? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think I quite like the fact that um, David Ross is outspoken because he echoes many of my thoughts on the relevance of 12G. Um, that you know, it's it's a good technology. Um, it's relatively cheap. It's um, a known way to implement things. And you know, as much as I'm a big fan of IP, you know, it, it has its place and it's definitely working and it's definitely being implemented. But um, there's also definitely a lot of people who can't afford it and don't need it until we all spend these next three or four IVCs making sure it all finally is working in, in the whole. But isn't 12G quite limited in cable length? Well, but, I mean, a lot of people don't need long cables, so, right. you know, absolutely, if I were Bloomberg, I would have made the same decision. And, um, you know, I, I don't think anyone's making a mistake doing what they're doing with IP. Um, we all need to work and create um, <clears throat> the systems that, that we need that will support us. So if you're making a big infrastructure decision now, absolutely IP has to be on the cards so that you can justify it in three to five years' time. Um, if you are smaller, you're not doing a rebuild, then really you need to start building small IP islands, making sure your staff know what's going on, try it out, and see if it works. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of angles on this. Having trained as a recording engineer and spent my early days in the audio business, I take umbrage to the fact, is IP going to work? Audio's had it for a very long time, and it, it's certainly there. Um, but the dark side, as we used to call video, <laughs> um, definitely, it's, it's, it's happening, it's working, it's now being 
um, adopted. We're seeing many, many, many more projects which are all IP based that we're responding to as RFPs and, and quotations. So I think IP is a bit of a no-brainer. It is happening. It's just a case of and are these when. RFPs, are they stating whether it's 2022-6 or 2110? 2110-2110. Um, now they're beginning to state 2110, but often not. No? Not all, not all the time. Um, but for me, what I was going to go on to say was that it's not IP that I think is the interesting bit. It's what IP enables. Right. So that is what's most interesting. You know, yeah. changing the transport tree stream, changing the infrastructure, fine, wonderful. We're, we're all going to make a bit of money out of doing that. But from the actual broadcasters or media companies' point of view, what it then enables them to do by taking certain services and virtualizing them, and eventually maybe more and more virtualizing um, the services, being able to then do interesting things with that, regardless of where your people are located, where your <coughs> infrastructure is located. Some of it might be on tin, some of it might be in, in the cloud, might not be in the same jurisdiction geographically. Um, the ability to, we've been talking the last several years about being able to more easily do pop-up and event type channels, but um, that's now beginning to come to fruition. And what we're starting to see is broadcasters looking at the whole idea and concept of being able to tie actual cost for an event tightly and more easily mm -hmm. to the actual event for pop-ups. And that opens up a completely new world because it then gives them the more easy justification to do stuff that they're currently not able to afford to do right now. Okay. So that's not there yet, but I think over the next two to three years we're going to see more of that. Neil? Uh, so, short answer is yes. So, we, we've done uh, uh, 50 IP-based systems. Uh, as a business over the last year or so, mm -hmm. um, and other stat rough figures 17 to 18, the revenue growth in IP based products is around 80%. So, yes, it's happening. I, I think going back to the size point, but we're also developing 12G products as well, and, and our market analysis says that there's Unless you've got a specific application for our IP, maybe a distributed model or remote production, for, for instance, if, if you're looking at a site, there's a, a sort of a minimal viable size where IP is economical. And if you think about it in terms of the core switch, it's around 256 square router in the middle. So above 256, IP starts making economic sense. Below that, dedicated silicon is a lot cheaper. I think that's always been the sort of model with cross-point routers that they're, they're a, roughly a square all in cost, you know, with the amount of silicon you need. So, yeah, 12G for small point products, anything distributed or large, IPs, is going to make real economic sense. Okay. And, and what about um, migration? Are we finding that it's a, um, a broadcasters are migrating slowly with from their existing SDI to IP? Or is it just greenfield science that you're working on? They're just moving slowly for stock. They're not spending <laughs> enough money. So, so it's I, just... you know, some of, some of the market, you know, the, when you, a lot of the market research we've done is that if, if you look at <coughs> the cost of content production is rising, mm. whether you're making content or buying rights, it's going up through, you know, people like Netflix driving 4K and HDR, so production values are going up. There's higher competition for sports rights, so they're going up. They're having to re react to the OTT threat and spend money there. So they've got our customers have de got decreasing, decreasing margins, competitive threat, and they're sweating broadcast assets. So mm -hmm. I think 
that's part of the reason we're seeing, you know, um, revenue uh, challenges for a lot of businesses in our sector, whether that's SDI or IP. So I don't think people are just going to race ahead and refresh all their infrastructure unless they've got compelling reasons to, to do so. Uh, and what are the reasons for moving to, to IP? What have you found? Why are people particularly taking on IP? So a scale, so there's economies yeah. of scale. Just economies of scale. And so, yeah, you can save money. But other projects we've done is uh, multi-site distributed applications. We're doing things with remote production. Uh, we think it's a really interesting area as well. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the growth market areas in a overall market that's very flat is, is live production. Right. Obviously growth there. Sure. Russell, how about you? Um, I mean, I think one of the, uh, clearly where you know, IP comes into its own is those, uh, those, those points where physically you just need something small. If you're rooting a thousand know, SDIs or something, then suddenly you actually want that to be IP. And that has to be one of the, um, you know, it's times, it's places like that which are driving, I think, the why people are moving. Mm -hmm. um, I worked at the IP showcase at NAB this year and people were coming up to me, and half of them saying, well, what does this mean? Fine. And some of them, I would say another half, saying, well, do I have to do this? And, you know, I think that shows there's an understanding that this is happening. Uh, there's a willingness to, to find out what's going on. But clearly that's not an indication that everybody's rushing in, as you're saying. Um, if you're going to build a massive building, you know, it's pretty hard to stick to your guns and say it's 12G only. Um, but if you've got a smaller facility, um, it's very much a, <coughs> well, we'll do all we need to. Because mm. the BBC in Cardiff, they're an IP. Yes. Is that true? Okay. Yes. yes. It is. It is. <laughs> right. Uh, but I was thinking, Martin, from, from your point, especially uh, HDR, uh, to work correctly, I, I believe, needs frame accurate metadata. So, generally speaking, so SD2110 would lend itself quite well to that one because you're separating the, the metadata with your timestamp in each, each packet and the video and the audio. It depends, it depends on what delivery standard you're going to go for. So, yes. Dolby Vision, yes, it's a frame or sequence based metadata. Uh, so, is HDR10 from Samsung and Amazon. A few others have joined in there for that. But if you're doing regular HDR10, Deliveries, then it's just a per program or per program part right. set of metadata. Okay. And of course, if it's HLG, possibly you don't need metadata. You um, don't? Well, I've just had a discussion with Kevin right. about um, okay. a possible Max 4 and Max CLL technical metadata for HLG, but I think uh, I don't know enough about that to okay. comment. That's interesting. Has anybody any views or questions? I think this is just an observation by our industry that when kind of shared storage and file-based production came in, we were promised that you could collaboratively work on projects. But then when you went to see everybody, they followed a very linear workflow. Right. The next process wouldn't pick it up until the previous one had been approved. Even though, so it's almost like we changed the infrastructure, put the old workflows on top, and only when we know it works do we then start to evolve and develop. Mm. And obviously, the IP bit's been very really interesting that 20, 22, 67 has basically just changed the transport layer. Yes. Yeah. 
And once we kind of get comfortable that we can put this over and we can do what we did with SDI, then we'll start to explore sending audio, you know, to an audio post house in LA rather and the video goes to someone in London and it all goes off and then comes back together. Yeah. It's almost at the moment that we're not quite trusting it to sort of throw ourselves in completely, but we'll do what we know is safe. What do you think is stopping that progression happening? Well, one of the things we're kind of seeing is still that, and a couple of people comment this, that SDI is pretty much plug and play. Yeah. Any manufacturer, plug it together and away we go. Yeah. In this IP world, we're not there yet. You can, lots of it works, and that's where like, the interops have been fantastic at IBC and NAB, because it has now allowed potential customers to come in and see 50, 60, 70 vendors yeah. all working. But then you'll find that there's your key product that you really like and everybody knows is not part of Ames, it's not in this, and suddenly how do I make this work? You know, <coughs> this is key to my operation, it's not there. Mm -hmm. Or how they've implemented it, everybody else is looking at them going, well, you haven't done that right, and then it doesn't work. <coughs> so, I mean, QVest have spoken by it, that their biggest concern is that the amount of professional services they have to put into a project Right. If there are certain parties in there who are not part of, you know, the Ames or Aspie, you know, one of that group, because yeah. they know there's going to be pain. Yeah, somebody's got to pay for that. Yeah, I think, I think you've also touched on an interesting point earlier. And what you started saying was that um, it's all very well going down this road of new infrastructure, and we can get people to work together and collaborate and talk. But actually, there's a huge industry in change management because us humans don't do change very well. So when it comes to workflow. We're going into a new technology arena, which opens up a whole range of new opportunities, but because we're not quite sure what those opportunities are just yet, it's much easier to take your existing workflow and plug it on top of that. Yeah. There's only a very few brave and bold ones out there. ITV was one of them, who decided instead of doing one thing with a piece of technology, they would actually look at the whole process, stand back from it, and invest quite a significant sum of money to go and change the whole process, because there was no point in just changing one piece of technology that automates the production of promo versioning, for example. Um, but it is much better if you're putting that in place with the new technology to do the whole process. But there are not many of those that are doing that because we don't do change very well. Mm. I mean, the other interesting thing, a few people started to talk about it, is this IP, the precursor that when 5G appears, that now suddenly we've got a way to completely change the way we work. You know, this is going to make remote production possible because you will get the guaranteed bandwidth between, you know, affordable <coughs> bandwidth between locations. You know, if you're at Glastonbury at the moment or 4G, lead band comes on, everybody's phone goes up, down goes the network. Mm -hmm. However, you've paid for, you've got that dedicated bandwidth, so you can use that to feed back and get your program. <coughs> and I think the IP infrastructures that we have now are kind of the precursor when you put 5G to the mix that could really change the way this works. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, I agree with the, the 5G. I, I read an article recently for the broadcast bridge on this, and um, my research showed that uh, just using COTS hardware, um, I think it's BT and EE had built a 5G system, and they're using HPE hardware. And they managed to get the delivery down at 2.8 gigabits a second uh, over RF um, with a latency of less than 2 milliseconds. So the technology is now there to do it, it's just waiting for that to become mainstream, so, so I agree. I think, I think with 5G, 
I read in the newspaper a couple of days ago, they're very worried about who makes the best 5G equipment, and of course that's the Chinese, and I'm wondering what else will be embedded in there. And, and, and one of the focus groups in um, <clears throat> at IBC, people were having, were talking about 5G, and they said it was obviously very fast and very uh, the future, but also the interference from leaves on trees, right. etc., would really cut back on, on the ability to. So you'd need many more cells yep. um, to to have it. And how does that get paid for? And, Located, etc. Mm. It adds a new dimension to leaves on the line, doesn't it? It does. The line soil came from that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's an interesting uh, point on um, integration because, uh, mm. you know, simplistically looking, you think, great, there are lots of opportunities uh, because we need now SIs to make all this work or, or the equivalent type of businesses. But I think the important point you raise is who then pays for it because I suspect the people who want these systems are saying, well, Yes, just make it work, and we don't care. I think Hubex used the example that they quote a customer and there's like 150 days professional services in there. Mm. The customer goes, well, what's that for? Well, that's to make it work. Because yeah. you've chosen somebody who has not adhered to the standards. Yeah. But then you run the risk of somebody coming in and undercutting. You say, well, you don't need all that professional work. And exactly. You're not getting it, and then it doesn't work. And you then... beaten it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds like you're a familiar story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, from the panel, do you think um, vendors are now, uh, or broadcasters are now de uh, demanding greater vendor collaboration? So, I mean, aims and such like But, I mean, Russell, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's absolutely true. Um, the, I remember John Honeycutt, CTO of Discovery, said he used to go to the vendors um, for the magic. Um, now he looks within his teams and goes to the vendors to make it work. Mm. And I think that's mm. indicative of the level that we've come to where everything's a system, it's a workflow, and we need to look at things in that as a whole. And who knows Discovery's workflow better than the CTO and the teams underneath them? <laughs> it's not going to be the vendors. So, um, you know, it's at that point that, that you know, any broadcaster, any end user needs to come up with the idea, this is what I want to make happen. Um, and then increasingly they then go to a vendor and make it to, to make it work to implement it with you know expertise or products that are already doing most of the work. And similarly in the with IP, um, you know, because we are still as manufacturers getting there, finishing off the products, waiting for the, the latest specifications and, and uh, standards to be finished so they can be put in place, it only makes sense when there's a large project to partner up with a vendor so that you can control the, the roadmap and have more leverage than that and know that you're going to hit your, um, you know, your deadlines. But do you, do you think broadcasters have that, um, that knowledge base within them to make all this equipment work even on a small installation? Um, I, I don't think that most um, broadcasters have the knowledge ready, but there's certainly many who, are, who have enough people within there and they're very good people to gain that knowledge quickly. Okay. So um, I certainly think that you can be you know, deterministic about it, but there's always a, a really important point of um, someone else, as in an SI or someone like that, is going to have a um, more experience and have done it more often. And so that consultative in, um, experience um, can be really helpful even to an already experienced team. Okay. I think there's a tripartite organisation going on here with the broadcasters, the integrators and the vendors. 
and the whole sand between them is shifting significantly at the minute. Um, SIs are losing out because they're not SIs anymore, they should really be system architects or, or advisors or consultants. That's what the smart ones like QVEST are, are becoming, um, more architects and advisors to uh, the big broadcasters who want to move into the back garden and sell the, the, the granny house, at the, the, the big house at the front and do the new thing out the back. Um, so I think they're starting to change the game in that respect. But I think it's an interesting shift because it used to be that the, the integrating community was a bit of a block between vendors and broadcasters in the past. And I think that's now moved a little bit sideways because there's no way that they can actually get to understand all the new technology solutions that are available. Uh, in the past, they probably were able to, but I don't think they're able to now. And so it's giving an opportunity for the vendors to get, I think, an awful lot more close to the broadcasters. I don't think the broadcasters have the... Uh, the skill set to do everything. It's, it sh shouldn't be that. It maybe was 30 years ago, um, but it's, it's not coming back. I think they've got the skill set to understand where they want to go and they can articulate where they want to go. And then translating that back into the vendor community is the, is the key for them. But we're seeing a real engagement uh, with, directly with the, the end broadcasters. And that's got huge benefits, I think, because we know how our kit works and being able to speak directly and, and get more, um, get closer to the actual broadcasters is much much better. Yeah. So I think well, collaboration, say partnership. So partnership used to be a euphemism for more discount for most broadcasters, more experience. And then I I think now that collaboration is actually the the broadcasters are looking to outsource as much of the problem as they can. So. You know, they're focusing on what their core business is. Their core business is servicing, you know, content to consumers. They don't want to solve all this technical stuff. They want a combination of vendors and SIs to do that for them. So there's an increasing push to put that out. So, yeah, they, they have the problem statement and requirement. And then I think Kieran makes a good point. We need to evolve as an industry of how the SI vendor relationship works. I think it's going to be far more like the. Um, IT sector where you know if you buy a Cisco switch it's not a Cisco guy that comes and installs it it's a Cisco partner that's trained and they have specialists on that technology and I think the specialism needs to be in that integration business that put in you know complex IP distributed systems the broadcasters don't want to have that in hands but uh, another dynamic I'll just throw something out so Again, when we were doing some market research, we found that um, there's a $4.5 billion market of in-house development by broadcasters for solutions we haven't come up with as vendors. Sometimes that we have. Well, well, but well, it, it's, it's mainly in the OTT space, because if you look in the OTT space, mm -hmm. most have gone off and developed, BBC developed iPlayer themselves, yeah. uh, Disney developed the Go platform. Um, because vendors weren't there with the right solutions. And, they, and they've had to fix that problem uh, with in-house engineering, but they desperately want to get rid of it. They don't want a software development team. Right. They want vendors to come up with those solutions, do you yeah. think? Uh, it's just needs that, So we've had conversations in that space. They, they want to outsource the problem. Okay, Martin. You're right now about the um, broadcasters having their own in-house software developers and hardware developers, but mainly software, I mean the BBC R&D 
has come up with an alternative to the H265 code, Turing type code, which doesn't have all the license um, licensing um, costs associated for the BBC at least. Um, the broadcaster knows what they want. That's the thing to give to the vendor and to the SI. That's what they want. They won't necessarily know how to get what they want. That's up to the vendor to give them a clear path to that along with the inconsistency integrator. But then the vendor needs to know specifically what the broadcaster wants to do with it in case it hasn't come up. So it's still a three-way it's still a three-way um, um, consult among the three-way Conversation, I suppose, is the way to look at it, really. But you do, it, as, you, as was previously mentioned, the broadcaster has to get on and do their thing. They can't be spending all the time to fix the nuts and bolts of why the vendor's equipment didn't work. So that's really down to the system integrator. Okay. Because, um, I, again, I wrote an article a short while ago about COTS and what COTS means for broadcasters. And um, I, I tried to put forward the, the argument that COTS isn't about necessarily saving money and, and being able to go down to PC World and buy a service, stick it in a rack and run a TV station on it. Um, but it's more about being able to gain from the innovation of the IT industry. One of the things I see um, is SLAs, service level agreements. Because if you buy a Hewlett-Packard server, you buy a server and then you spend another 20% on an SLA. And, and if that piece of hardware breaks, then uh, you pick up the phone and somebody comes and fix it. Because you don't sound like that trying to be able to fix it yourself. Uh, but what's the view of the panel? Are you seeing more reliance on SLAs? Is it becoming important for broadcasters? Neil? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. It's, been, it's always been a challenge to get service agreements in this industry because if I go back to uh, my days at Provel, we would sell a router with a 10-year warranty. For free, you know. So <laughs> when you're coming from the world that used to do that, and, and back when I first saw you writing software at Provel, Roger will remember, it used to have a quote for a router, and with its 10-year free warranty, and the last item on the quote was software is required free of charge. You know, so those days are long gone, and 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 an industry that had norms like that, so you then selling 10, 15, 20 percent SLAs on systems. It, it's been tough, but as we move increasingly to a software world, it, it's a lot easier to do it with a software product than a hardware product. But then we're also looking at, okay, increasingly the hardware products are actually a, a card with a whole bunch of software on it, and mm. we actually need an SLA around the software or firmware that we're running on that card. Because the SLA is not just about support, it's about the ongoing development of that software code base, so you get you know, feature set. So when the next part of the 2110 standard is approved, that that card will support it. <coughs> and that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the evolution of the product and keep, keeping it current. Yeah. So, and, and we've done some creative things with bigger customers as well that have had the very large customers where we've built in a level of technology research, <coughs> which is an incremental step to getting to where maybe a managed platform as a service. Mm. We're not there yet, but to have them within that annual payment they're making, as well as moving the software forward, we're integrating. They've got a budget to spend on keeping the hardware current as well. So it's really important. We we have to get there yeah. because as we move to software. Martin. So back in the day, there was a cosy relationship between the chief engineer of wherever and the vendor. And they'd go out for lunch, and the vendor knew what the what the company required, and the chief engineer was 
explaining it, but was happy that the vendor, because they'd had such a long relationship, would also, um, would also know. So they came up with quite a nice solution. And of course, it wasn't audited or monitored. So then somebody came along and went, so what, what's all these little lunches going on? So why don't we have a purchasing department? <laughs> and the purchasing department, <laughs> I knew that would bring them up. So, so, but, so the purchasing department came along and to, to, to make sure that the company had best value for money. And of course that might have been, you know, instead of having a terabyte of, or 20 terabytes of Isilon discs for this amount of money, I found, the purchasing department says, I found we can do it on lacy drives. <laughs> and so, but, now, but now, of course, that's matured, that whole process has matured, so the purchasing department has somebody embedded with a bit of, with, with reality of what the final solution uh, requirements are. Um, sorry, I'm struggling to remember what the question was. Oh, sorry, SLAs. 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 Yes. Sorry, uh, we're moving on to the vendor and the purchasing department. Yeah. Yeah. The purchasing yeah. department. Yeah. 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 SLAs, support agreements, yes. I think they're being, uh, we're certainly seeing a, a, a growth in that area, and it is something that needs to happen with software-based solutions. I think one of the side benefits We've always been fearful of IT getting involved in broadcast because you know we're, we're interested in timing and they don't really care when data packets arrive. Um, but one of the side benefits of IT getting involved in broadcasting is whenever they see a quote, they go, yeah, 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 that's no problem. What do you mean that's a problem? That's no problem. Because traditionally it has been a problem in our, in our world, but actually that is a, a, a proper side benefit. And it needs to happen for all the reasons that, that Neil mentioned, and we're seeing that as well, as being able to sell a, a project to, to someone over five, seven years with uh, three to, or three and a half year technology refresh in the middle and being able to upgrade the, the software all along the lines. You're paying for this, you're not just paying for support, you're not just paying for the fact that you can call somebody and get a human at the end of the line. Mm -hmm. you're, you're getting those new feature sets um, built in every six, eight, twelve months. Sure. Russell? Yeah, well obviously I agree with, with all of those those points. Um, you know, it's, it's becoming easier um, to to sell support and I think that's partly because um, we're finding many more ways to make it useful and you know, coming back to the previous point about collaboration I think um, we've got to differentiate um, between putting a project live and then the ongoing running of that project and I think the partnerships with vendors and SIs are obviously critical in order to put a live project live. Um, the question is then what happens basis for the next three, four, five years. Um, it's then when really the internal teams need to take over within a broadcaster and manage their own kit and that's the right thing to do in most cases. But then you know the the support is really also about helping them back off some of the expertise and um, sometimes if there's a particularly difficult um, bug in the IP world it takes a lot of time to look into it, mm. a lot of expertise and, and different equipment. So you need a kind of a backup team really to come in, swarm on the problem and sort it out. And I think you know, that's another way in which support is, is, is increasingly important and not just about you know, returns and, and upgrades. Does anybody have any views on support? Service of agreement? Yes? Yeah, I agree with most of the purchasing departments. <laughs> what? What sometimes happens, and I don't know the panel agrees with this, is you do get uh, support agreements put in place with software. 
and everything's going, ticking along nicely, and then someone in accountancy or whatever says, we've got to cut the budget by 20%. What can we cut? We won't pay support this year. Um, in a world with 2110, IP and things like this, where all these different bits of kit have to, for it to work properly, has to be for the same standard, a new standard comes out. They didn't pay support on half the kit in that system. So those bits of that system don't get the upgrade, updates. And then you've got half a system which is updated, half a system which isn't. And I've seen myself the catastrophic effect that could have. And so I think we've still got quite a, quite a way to go with SLAs in this industry. You've also got a lot of broadcasters not wanting to pay what it's worth. There is still a, oh, oh, we never pay more than 10%. They don't look at what they're getting as part of the contract. They don't look at whether they're getting 10 software updates a year or whether they're getting engineers at midnight or whatever. It's, no, 10%. So what do you think the rationale behind that is a, 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 a broadcaster? The customer's just trying to blag it? Are they sort of yeah, expecting that well, you know, they think, take you from yeah. behind and we'll um, get that? It, it, it also want, goes back to what Neil said about yeah. you know, a lot of our, the traditional customer base in our industry are, are getting squeezed. Yeah. You know, the big Netflix bogeyman is coming to get them, that sort of thing. Um, or there is a perception, a bit of a perception in that way. Um, and so they're looking at, they're looking always very hard at budgets. You know, they're looking, if we go in the cloud, can we save money? Mm. Uh, do we have to, um, we don't have to manage pieces of tin, can we get by with less engineers? Well, actually, the answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> I mean, you'll end up with an in-house software development team yeah. the size of a planet. But with, with different vendors and direct SLAs going on, um, decisions on whether they pay support this year, oh, maybe, we'll, maybe we won't pay this year, but we'll pay next year. And then the manufacturer will upgrade us when we pay next year. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a degree of that, certainly. And, and, and it, it, it does go back to the days of, you know, 10-year warranties and things like this. And, and there is still an element out there very much of, oh, we on work this. The, the risk of jumping down the agenda, one of the things that is changing that, though, is security. Because yeah. oh, yeah. nobody wants to be the person that didn't buy a support contract and then they get hacked because their software's not up to date. So, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that hurts. You know, but, that yeah. whole topic that we're coming on to, but that, that is changing the dynamic. There's a sort of corporate governance with a lot of our customers now where they... They have to be in support. They'll still push for the ten percent, but then that has to be holding on us as uh, vendors to articulate a, a, you know, a reasonable value proposition about what, what you get with the SLA. So, is it worth talking about the models that people buy equipment? Um, so, traditionally, it was a capex purchase. It was bought. It lasted three, five years. You had support. Um, you should put ten, twelve percent. The reason what I've been doing is changing that model for half the industry that we've been targeting mm. and doing recurring income models. So you take a £150,000 system, instead of paying that in one go um, through a finance company or, or directly on a budget, you actually pay a recurring fee each year. And within that, you get your software upgrades, you get your support, you get your tech refresh. Mm. And as we move more into PC and COPS hardware, all you're really buying is upgraded you know, PC hardware as you go throughout the, sure. the life of that product. And that seems to be the way that, you know, certainly in my experience, what broadcasters are saying, they think it will go to in the future with 
things like cloud-based broadcasting <laughs> and so on. This is one of the benefits of SaaS as well, isn't it? So, uh, you know, with SaaS, you just pay as you go. Correct. Right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and you scale up and scale down. Yeah. I think, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head in the last part. You said broadcasters think that's where they, they want to go. That's, we've been talking for the last three years to broadcasters about buying it as a, an OPEX. Here's the CapEx price. Here's the OPEX price yeah. mm. um, per quarter, per hour, mm. per feature set. We can get very granular on all of that. And I keep saying to them, why buy 100% of the product like you used to do when you only used 60% of the features 40% of the time? Yeah. Now you can pay for 60% of the features, and if you want to go on to that quarterly OPEX model, you can go for 40% of the, the time and only do that. And if you want 500 hours of 3D graphics that you're going to use over the next six or nine months, buy the 500 hours. But that's a really hard story for them to get across to their finance people because they yeah. keep coming back and going, Oh, but we're used to buying capex, and I'm not quite sure we can move to that it's because just, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying no, but it, it is where it can go, and it can yeah. go there even more quickly once we start moving to a virtualized system, yeah. Yeah, right. either in cloud or private data center. Or <coughs> so, with with virtualized systems, how how soon is this going to happen? Do you think it's a reality? Is it about to happen? Does it happen? It's, 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 it's already be, happening. It's already yeah. so you I, I was going to say it's a mixed state. So we've got some. But the larger customers who hate OPEX, absolutely hate it. They wanted everything CapEx because they wanted to account for it and provide for it in a, in a single financial period. So where we've got other guys that want, definitely want an OPEX yeah. model. And so I don't think there's going to be one size fits all. And I think we're going to have to have different commercial models to fit our different needs. So, you know, a service provider is the most likely to want an OPEX because they can back to back their costs with the revenue. Mm -hmm. But, the, the you know, we've got you know, I'll say NBC. So they're owned by Comcast. They've got more money than probably Netflix. You know, <laughs> when Netflix don't have music, did they? <laughs> you, know, they um, you know, for them, they definitely want it as, uh, as CapEx because then they it's just accounted for in a period and cash isn't an issue for them and yeah. uh, they don't need to worry about it. But it almost sounds like the, um, the accountancy department is driving the the innovation for oh, yeah. the technology. <laughs> I think that's the case. Is that, or is that a state of the audience? Yeah. 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 The the money and then we need we, we've got technologies that are uh, now providing different options for how we provide that technology. So yeah. if we it would be really hard to do OPEX models if everything was still coming in a you know quarter million dollar metal box mm -hmm. full of electronics. That's really you know, you have to do all sorts of back-end financing internally to <coughs> out. But when it's software, it's, it's a lot easier to be creative and adaptable and fit to mm. what fits the customer's commercial preference. But Martin, you, you've seen, I said that's always been the case with cancer. <coughs> well, I suppose, you know, if it's a business, they want it to succeed and they understand if you're going to buy a quarter of a million pound box from Quantel, you can charge £700 an hour. And they'll work it out. If you can't charge £700 an hour, they won't let you buy it. Right. And then, of course, other products came along that were just software-based on, on uh, off-the-shelf hardware, right. and PCs. And what about you, Russell? Well, I, I, my view is that there should be as much innovation as possible around um, you know, how we charge for things. Um, the problem is that finding finding a broadcaster that is it has the appetite to, to go fully OPEX. Um, I think they're often talked about and. No doubt they, they exist, um, but the chances are it, it doesn't work that way. 
And so um, it is tricky innovating, but not innovating too much. Mm. Um, to that point, I don't think it's going to be the broadcasters. Because we're also already seeing you know, requests for um, designs from telcos and from yeah. companies that are dealing in areas where the traditional broadcasters aren't dealing. And they're the ones who I think are going to break the new ground on OPEX. In broadcasting, you know, where we're seeing, we've got a, a big customer who uses our kit for automating the promos, automating the creation of hundreds of promos a week. Great, wonderful. Nicely installed over the last year and, oh, we need some more. But we don't want to buy another system. We don't want to invest in our own bit of method. Well, that's fine. Why don't you use the OPEX model for whenever you need to expand and contract? If you're just going into an overflow, then you can use that. And that's the sort of area that's going to help that broadcasters begin to understand how they can use virtualization to, to help in certain areas. Nice, but with the proliferation um, of COTS, I, mean, I would have thought it's almost impossible for any broadcast manufacturer to take on um, IBM or, or Hewlett-Packard and, and build services. There's absolutely no point. Um, so I, I, I understand the argument for moving to software. I mean, it's quite compelling because we can do pay-as-you-go and we can have software microservices that can make work together. Um, but that sort of implies the traditional hardware manufacturer is now gone. What do we think, Russell? Well, I mean, if you look at um, some of the COPS-based uh, things available now, they have inside of them um, you know, specific NICs, Mellanox NICs, which you know shows the importance still of having you know proper interfaces, interfaces that we we understand and trust. And um, you know that may well disappear as well. Um, but you know, going back to the 12G story, there will still be um, you know some of that kind of long tail um, requirement to have you know, non-IP based things. So absolutely, I think there will be a lot more um, purely virtualized um, solutions. Um, but whether whether hardware is gone. But just like just like video um, on SDI, it will never purely go. Yeah. It'll never totally go, but if you use the analogy of 100 years ago, there was wax cylinders and audio, mm -hmm. and the whole chain between, like I mentioned earlier, between content and creator and, and consumer evolves and moves, and you know now we are using um, a phone company to consume our audio and our video. In fact, that phone company wasn't even a phone company. 20 years ago. Um, so that whole arena of hardware, is hardware manufacturing going to stay or go? I think huge chunks of it will go. Um, certain parts of it will stay, but have to evolve, have to evolve in order to keep up. Okay. What about human interfaces? I mean, I see that as the, the bastion, the bastion part. Sorry, but what? Human interfaces, yeah, control patterns. That's already changing. We showed a new panel this year that, um, because we, I think like everybody, we thought the master control panel, hardware panel was, was going, but still, like there's still a huge customer base out there for, for SDI infrastructure, things will begin to move to IP, there's still a, 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 a large customer base out there for certain hardware products. Yes, that will stay. Okay. And Neil, how do you see this? Yeah, I haven't worked out how to virtualize a camera yet, so let's go. <laughs> so, uh, could, could Simon, Simon Morris come in, please? Simon Morris? Simon. Simon. Me? Yes. Simon? Uh, yeah. Ah, you're up there. Could you... I'll come down. Can you come down, please? Thank you. Yeah, someone new to in the car park. Right
<coughs> I think a bit like the discussion around um, uh, IP versus 12G, there are uh, certain applications where dedicated silicon is going to be cheaper for a long time than putting it onto generic compute. Right. But then, you know, you hear that, you know, sort of cloud platforms that they're starting with CPU, they've got virtualized GPUs now, they're talking about virtualized FPGAs mm -hmm. in the cloud. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a trend, but there'll be a very long tail on hardware because you can do things very cheaply with dedicated silicon. Sure. And so there's a cost point again. Mm -hmm. Martin. The nice thing about WAP cylinders 100 years ago was you didn't need any electricity. When you mentioned this, it, and Neil picked up on it immediately, uh, it's the cameras. You yeah. can't get you know, away from that. And companies like Netflix will, well, and broadcasters will give a specification for the cameras that the programs have to be shot or videoed with. On the other end are the televisions, which might well replace the monitor. And I've seen that. Right. And uh, calibrating monitors and calibrating TVs to match monitors, you know what, what you paid for. Mm -hmm. um, because TV monitors <laughs> are accurate, colour accurate, and most of them are colour accurate, whereas TVs, even when you turn off all the hundreds of things, you know, mm -hmm. smooth motion, dynamic contrast, adaptive black, mm -hmm. will just come up with some basic faults like colour purity across it, mm. which is fine if you're going to have a client in a room for, a, for an edit or a grading or finishing session and you've got the reference monitor there and then they just want to see it on something big. Mm. Um, but it, it, no creative decisions should be made on the TVs. That, having said that, I think everything else in between, mm. yes, I, I think that workflow okay. can be virtualised and what has been virtualised. I think what, what's interesting to think about in, the, in terms of COPS and whether hardware will continue to exist is um, the uh, neurons, uh, the axon network attached processors they launched at IPC. The, in principle, if you look at what it does, it sits on a network, it listens to the IP, it processes it and kicks it out again. In principle, that could be anything. You could build a, a rack of you know, normal servers. But what, what they've done is they've put kind of dedicated I.O. on the back with you know, 12G and all this kind of stuff and SFPs. They've also done a mix of beefy FPGAs and CPUs. So they've kind of they've done their own kind of version of it. In some ways, what you say, it's a server. And so the question is, when you need something local on your you know, uncompressed network, um, is that type of approach going to stand the test of time and we'll still be using that in five years' time? Yeah. Or, um, you know, because that, if that's the case, then absolutely there's, 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 a, there's a lot more scope for on-site hardware. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot more flexible than what we currently consider as infrastructure and blue. Okay. I mean, on the, uh, the beautiful subject of networks, um, I think security is always very interesting on SDI because you knew when somebody had hacked your network because they had a pair of wire cutters in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> with networks and software, I mean, where is security and where is it all going? Um, Martin? So the DPP recently, the Digital Production Partnership, recently looked into all of this, and in fact there was um, a meeting held by the DPP with various chief engineers and broadcasters, along with GCHQ. Uh, representatives from GCHQ to, to look into this very subject because of course 
the French television station, was it TV5? Yes, yes. TV5 on. Was, um, was hacked, and of course we have Sony, who upset Kim Jong-un with his, you know, with, his, with their movie, so. Mm -hmm. And then and even more basic hacks, like, um, is it Game of Thrones? That, the, what, the last episode was released? Yeah, that yeah. Um, Prime Focus yes. had in India, that was released, and that was just a disgruntled employee. Yeah. Yeah, it's just only, it's not just for television or radio, it, or cinema, it's our bands, it's everything. It's, yeah. it's, it's there, it's a present danger. And do you think the, the security is going to get more dangerous as we um, virtualize more and go into the cloud more, or is it going to get safer? I think unless you cut off all outside communication, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be a lot more work to keep stuff safe. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, so a couple of things. So I think it was Bloomberg, not 100% sure, but one of the, the, the IP projects we're involved in, they all their incoming lines they take to baseband SDI and then back again yeah. as a firewall. <laughs> so, well, yeah, who's going to hack through your SDI then? You know, but the, I think the big issue for the struggling vendor community in our space is who's going to pay for it? It's really expensive for a small company to invest. In, in running really secure software and stay current with all the threats. Can you just upload it to the IT department and say, you know, is your job to give me a secure network? Well, no, the software has to be secure. So it, it's everything from password policies, um, patch upgrades, it, you, you know, it's costly to keep software secure. And, um, I don't think anybody's put their hand up to pay for it. It's going, to be, going back to the SLA conversation, yeah, we're struggling to get customers to pay for an SLA to go back and say, hey, we need another 20% on our software to make it secure. Yeah. Nobody's having that conversation yet. But it, there's a really big cost to do it properly. And I, I don't think our sector's doing it well at all. But sectors that do so, IT, for instance, though, so, actually, ironically, if you put Amazon uh, and the Amazon Cloud has got some of the best sort of security policies and practices there there are. So, actually, if you put it onto Amazon, you, you get a, from a vendor perspective, you get a lot for free. Right. From a security perspective, it doesn't stop you writing bad code that can be compromised as well. But, yeah. you know, um, it, it's a big it's a big headache, frankly, is it, for, I think, the traditional broadcast vendor space. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, would, I would agree with that. It is a, a headache. It is a, a, going to be a tough one for smaller companies to get um, up to speed on, on making sure their software is absolutely secure. The likes of the, the, the big cloud providers are going to help with that <coughs> by putting it on there, of course. Um, I think you've only got to look at what, the, what jobs are out there at the moment and the number of broadcasters hiring cybersecurity analysts, cybersecurity managers. You know, ITV, I think, have got seven jobs advertised within the last few weeks alone. Mm -hmm. Just ITV. Um, so that says something about how seriously they're taking it, and also says something about where they're probably wanting to go with it. Um, on the TV5 Mond uh, story, it's, it's actually very interesting because it goes back to the human story. I did a bit of work at the beginning of the year for Airbus who had done uh, a case study on the whole debacle that happened at TV5. And what actually happened was that an interview took place between a journalist and subject and in the background, like we all see in the news suite, is a whole bunch of screens 
that people have been working on, they've all gone home for the evening. Right on the screen behind the guy who was being interviewed, there were a whole bunch of post-its. Yeah. All around the screen. Right. With passwords. Right. Yeah. All they then had to do was find the network. Yeah. That wasn't quite so difficult. So it goes back to the human thing we talked about earlier, that you know you can have as much cyber security as you like, but if there's an idiot in the chain. Yeah, well this is a problem. I have the good fortune to be able to run an IT department in my last proper job. And I then decided to take security very seriously because I realised it was my problem. And the number of monitors I saw around the floor, just for you know, users, normal users, uh, not even in the program train, who had a post-it note on the side of their monitor with the word password written on it. And at first I thought, you know, they were written in invisible ink, or, you know, is it on the back, or is it upside down, or what have they done? Is it coded in some special code? And then I realised the password was password. <laughs> and it, it happens a lot. And I, I think the, um, the security, the user security has to be driven from the CEO down. Um, because when we did try and bring a security policy in which says you have to change your password every two weeks, you know, I, all hell broke loose. <laughs> I became public enemy number one in the building. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's really got to be taken quite seriously. Can I just do a straw poll? Yeah. Uh, I've got a friend who's in HMRC, head of cyber security at HMRC, and he tells me some horror stories and the benefits of various different password um, procedures. Who here regularly uses two-factor authentication? You're all technologists, that's probably why. <laughs> I suspect most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing Custom said to me that I think you just said there is somebody on the board, until you get like a chief security officer who's sitting at that sort of level, yeah. and at the moment I think there's only one or two broadcasters who actually sort of employ somebody from outside mm -hmm. to sit at board level <clears throat> yeah. and can dictate that policy and it's filtered down. Yeah, we're going to leave ourselves open to this because, yeah, SDI is lazy. The U.S. military is the biggest user of SDI. Why? Because it can't be hacked. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I think it was at the, the Bloomberg talk we went to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure I heard one of the uh, representatives <coughs> say, "Where's the effect of?" Um, we brought in some network guys to build our IT, uh, our network system, our, our proper IT uh, network uh, gurus to build it, our, our system for us, but. They, they didn't know how to do it because we're television and they're IT. So we got our broadcast engineers to build the network. And at that point, I thought, ouch. <laughs> yeah. So what do the broadcast engineers know about IT security that an entire IT industry doesn't know? That would be my first question. Comment I make there is that we're talking about multi-gigabit multicast flows, which is not exactly common in the IT industry. Yeah. Well, a lot of the issues that I've had over, well, 15 years that I've been running IT, IP over um, networks um, is just that sort of problem. Um, but the majority of IP people work TCPIP, um, they don't work UDP. The idea of multicast just frightens them so much. And that's where we as an industry are still pushing the edge. I mean, Russell mentioned the um, use of Melnox NICs because you need to um, take the stack out of the average NIC to get it to work at the, at the rates that we're talking about. So we're still doing that. And that's where some of the broadcast people have some understanding that, you know, well, they value content and they're just whizzing by 
20 or 30 qubits per second, um, in all directions at once. And I think that's part of the problem. And a lot of it is just getting people used to the idea and designing security in. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I can remember doing last two, three, two links where we were checking exactly what the vocabulary was that you could use over the link, just so nobody could hack the, 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 um, the, the, that link. Mm -hmm. And that is, I hate to say, it, it is over 25 years ago. Yeah. That was a level of security that, that a system that was in the broadcast chain carrying serial data for subtitles actually had. Yeah, and I think that um, there are many new companies starting up um, now, and there's also established companies which are launching totally new platforms. And I don't think they should um, be complaining about having to do security first. Mm -hmm. And when the company X comes along and does a penetration test against it, you know, I don't think they should be complaining that people have said, well, you, know, you can't change your password or this doesn't work. You know, I think you know, that shows you know, a lack of you know, thought on the, on the vendor's part. Um, it absolutely is difficult to bring what you know, legacy code along and you know, things that existed four or five years ago. But there is definitely, over the last two three years, a bit much bigger push. Um, and you can only hope that you know, people like um, uh, Coral Bay who are starting up uh, they've got their play out in the cloud. You would hope that they have you know, gone there from day one and um, designed security in, just as if there was an infrastructure manufacturer who got a new card and a new platform. Similarly, they would have you know, good security. But I think that's an interesting point that you make about legacy software. And sort of ties in what Neil was saying earlier that software has to be written from the ground up to be secure. Now, if you're um, integrating the system, so you know, we were talking earlier about whether you go for a Greenfield site or you slowly integrate your, your IP system into your SDI. If you're um, integrating your IP system and you've got a piece of software written in DOS, which is still being used in a part of the workflow which we've all come across, um, and then you take that piece of DOS software and put it in your IP, that could be a single point of failure for security. You know, the question is, who checks it? Who's responsible for checking In the film industry, they have the NPAA, the Moving Picture Association of America, and they will audit most production companies heavily to see if they comply and then only then will they be get given the chance to work on it. And it started off, I mean, simple things like disabling the USB port on your desk side workstation so you can't copy things across. Only being able to use the company's email rather than your own yep. that you can then send things out. Having to having gates, entry and exit gates to the to go to, to get into the building. Yeah. Um, and having to show photo ID to yeah. HR to say who you are. I heard about one of those gates where um, they weigh you as you go in and weigh you as you come out. I don't know if that's not wise at all. That's what the pies are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you taking a seat? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, anybody, any other views they want to share on security? Yes. How, how far do you take the security? Because at, at the end of the day, you've also got um, international uh, cyber criminal mm -hmm. happening with you, Russia, Korea, China. We saw just recently that you. Potentially, all the way Amazon aren't admitting to the fact that they had super micros with a little tiny Chinese chip that was sitting there. But potentially, we've got industries being targeted by international as well. So it's a very, very difficult thing to try and try and work against. This is the, you've got the ransomware that's going on, but once you're potentially going to have Russia or China or North Korea try and take down. Um, 
international television stations as a possible threat, and that's not something I think really that broadcasters can afford to, to, no. to, to, to manage. I mean, well, it depends on the broadcaster. So, you know, part of our strategy is to align ourselves with the, the broadcasters we see that have got best practice. So, BBC, as a state run television station, you know, if they, they get thousands of hacks and attempts a day, you know, or tens of thousands, I've forgotten what the number was. So that, they're, they're very uh, forward-thinking in their security policies, and, and we're engaging with their team to help sort of prioritise the roadmap for us to, frankly, we're playing catch-up you know, uh, against where the BBC are, and they have to be, because they're, they're sort of virtually government. Yeah. So they're, they're looking at that all of the threats you described and I think um, they've got a, a department of a scale and the depth of resources that you know, even Grass Valley can't afford so let's work with them and leverage their experience and knowledge and they're, they're more than happy to engage with the vendors and help the vendors get them because it, it, it helps them so that, that's our approach is pick some good customers that are doing Good stuff in the space, and then engage with them and help them steer. Um, I think that uh, beautifully leads us into. Well, I didn't know whether to call this the next section artificial intelligence or machine learning, because uh, I, I can't find a true definition of the two. I'm sure one exists, but um, I mean, what's the, the view of the panel? Has, has machine learning has it progressed from last year? Is it, is it just a marketing ploy, or is it actually doing things? Russell. Um, yeah, I did actually look up artificial intelligence and machine learning definition a while ago. Um, there were various, and um, fundamentally I think it doesn't matter to probably anybody in this room, because at the end of the day is computers making decisions in you know, a certain way, and whether they are aware of what they've decided and feed up back themselves, or whether we feed back, it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is, it's here to stay, it's here to stay across all verticals and all industries, so, you know, in the same way as you know, cloud or just using the internet in order to achieve something. Uh, nobody knew um, exactly what it would lead to, um, but nonetheless, whatever industry you go into, it's been transformed in some way. And so the same is going to be true for AI, and um, we just need to work out where that is. Now, from my point of view, we can either automate things which are already possible or would be possible if they didn't need so many people. Um, so that's just getting that scale, making it quicker and efficient. And there's, there's valid reasons to do that, and it, it does add value. But I think the, the best differentiator is when uh, if you use AI uh, to actually create something which wouldn't or otherwise be created. It's not, we don't have it now for lack of people, actually, you know, it's just because it wasn't possible. And the ex an example of that is in upscaling, downscaling of images, instead of using specific algorithms like SOS, you know, by cubic, um, which have their own positives and, and negatives. If you use you know, machine learning, you can, you can teach it to not have some of the, the steps to spot artifacts, to get rid of artifacts to see curves and put curves in. So essentially you're changing the maths at that point. Um, it's, it's kind of dynamic and you can create um, you know, upscaled images much better than you would have otherwise. And, and it's companies like that who can get that kind of first move experience, first mover experience in machine learning, tuning it, using it, um, you know, their own version of it, who are, I think, really best set 
to start really disrupting mm -hmm. rather than some of the encoder manufacturers who are simply just doing a thousand things, seeing which options work nicely, and then that's your new encoder settings. Very valuable, but I don't think that's the disruptor that it would otherwise be. Okay. Um, we're very much heavily involved in the post-production and play-out arena, and in that area it's a very deterministic field that relies on certainty. Um, you know, if something goes wrong with a commercial, Coca-Cola doesn't just not pay for the ad, they don't pay for the campaign. So it's a problematic thing in some ways in the delivery end because play-out needs to be absolute. It, it can't take any chances. You yeah. can't risk putting a bit of code in there. But saying that, you know, just touching to your point of, of how you can automate, I think there's a grey area between sophisticated automation based on um, a more sophisticated understanding of metadata and not just the metadata that's built into the content. So, for example, we... We do systems where you can have channels running and if there happens to be accidentally gaps or shorter running programs than we're expected to be, then it will be programmed into the business rules to go and fetch this type of content. So if it's a, if it's a National Geographic type channel, it'll go and get polar bears rather than get, getting historical content and it'll fill the gaps and it'll, it'll spread things out as, as you set up those business rules. Is that machine learning? When you start to tie that to the data that then comes back from the broadcaster's um, own consumer data and your systems start to learn how to adjust what type of content to put in on thematic channels, then that's a, a, an area we're exploring at the moment, which is really worthwhile. But again, that's, that's relying very heavily on being certain about what you're actually doing. Um, and that's the key in, in the field that we're working in. Okay. Yeah. So... It's a technology, and I, I think there's a danger. Well, we do it all the time in this industry. We start with the technology, and we have a discussion about technology, and what should we do with it, and what does it mean for us. For me, it's just another tool in the toolbox. I'd much rather be looking at what's happening in the industry, what, what problems do we need to solve, Oh, and which of the tools in our toolbox will help us solve those problems. So whether it's automating a process that takes too many humans, okay, right, let's use that AI tool to address that problem. And, you know, arguably we should be talking about what are the problems out there, not what are the new technologies and where could we point them at. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit back to front for me to start talking about AI and what does it mean. Um, there's a whole host of things I can see that we can use it for, sort of, you know, proactively looking at sort of loading or when the system's going to fail, so preemptive maintenance. There's lots of people doing very intelligent sort of logging of content. Uh, I saw a really interesting application where people are teaching it different sports, so it will do automatic highlights. And there was the IBM Watson uh, coming to Wimbledon. There's many applications, but I think start with an application. Have I think it would be important to have knowledge about AI and its capabilities with inside your business, but then it's just one of the tools you bring to bear to solve the problem, I think. Martin? So, <clears throat> yeah, I was... I'm not entirely clear of the difference between AI and machine learning, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I did read something that Google had got these two computers, I guess, to talk to each other. To talk to each other in, in English, 
but very, very quickly, they developed their own language. Mm -hmm. So they could pass information much quicker, which was completely indecipherable mm -hmm. to any human observer listening mm -hmm. to it. So I think that possibly is artificial intelligence. Most things that we have um, are, is, um, we come across at the moment is machine learning, whether it's just one process with one result or multiple parallel different processes with multiple outputs being channeled into the result that you'd want. So Moorfield's Eye Hospital, when they're looking at uh, various eye defects like macular degeneration, normally have to have a scan looked at by the professor. And they look at it, and yet they've now got exactly the same success rate with machine learning, examining those same scans. Um, and slightly faster than the professor, but of course they work all night, they don't go on summer holidays, Christmas is another day to the machine learning. Um, and so I saw some stuff at IBC, um, we started to use that. And uh, if you can take out repetitive tasks, and I think it's a good thing. If you start getting false results from it, then clearly it's, it's not working. Yeah. And it is all about just giving loads and loads of repetitive data to a machine and kind of can see a pattern. And that's the argument for going to cloud, isn't it? Because you've got a massive amount of processing power and a massive amount of data all very close to each other. So it will make machine learning a lot more efficient. Yeah. Yes, so you've got to be very, very careful about those data sets. Really careful. Yes. Because garbage in, garbage out is really, really important with any of this stuff. Yeah. You know, and a human can discard oddities, which machines can't yet necessarily do. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the difference, possibly at the moment, between machine learning and artificial intelligence is that the artificial intelligences are not telling us that they're there. I think coming, you know, the, the point about about that, that is that it is difficult. But on the other hand, I think people who start now and who are refining and getting experience in, in using yeah. machine learning algorithms and, and teaching them essentially are those people who are going to be able to more successfully yeah. you know, push forward in that. But also, there's um, there's a project recently finished to create um, on-premise um, machine learning. Um, specific to media field um, and that's because it, do you want to spend all your time and money teaching someone else's algorithm something which is based upon your archives and effectively um, it is great using the cloud but if you're trying to make sense of something which is your property and your rights um, particularly if it's a large back catalogue then there's a lot of common sense in keeping that actually on premise Okay. Um, and uh, finally, for uh, next year, uh, we have to have panelists. What uh, what do you expect to see at IBC next year, and, and what are the um, what are the opportunities for innovators? Um, Martin. Well, I'm going back to machine learning again because one of the best things I saw at IBC this year, and I think it will um, continue, was um, the Japanese broadcaster Nippon Hozo Kyokai NHK. They had an automatic colorization technology for monochrome video using AI slash deep learning. And um, as I say, I used to work for NHK, and even back in the 80s, they were, they were innovating all the time, as they, as they do as they do the BBC here. So, um, so 
what they did is they, like Peter Jackson at Weta, just come out with his first World War colourised uh, movie. So how that was colourised, I don't know. I suspect that there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> compositors involved, possibly. Um, but, but also some, some clever technology band to have done. But with an HK, <clears throat> so I've written this down just so I can get it straight. The artificial intelligence learning, typically, so you get the monochrome video, which is most times a film scan of, of uh, black and white film. And then the artificial intelligence learns typical colours of objects and they have these three what they call neural networks. One does the colour estimation of what it should be. The other does the colour correction of what it, what it actually is going to end up as. And then they have what they call colour propagation where you might just adjust the colour of one object in one frame and it'll go back and, for and, and forward and find that object no matter how it's been, um, how it's changed in its shape or, or whatever, or human face. And, and colour it the same, or, or do the colour correction the same, because what hand painting won't do, you'll never get the same consistency, and that's why you get a lot of flicker, and it's albeit disappointing, although from a long time ago. And so I'd, I'd like to see some of those, some of those things uh, progress. I mean, the, and the statistics was five seconds of monochrome video will take several days by a conventional methods to to, to do five seconds, to colourise five seconds of conventional video. Whereas um, using the NHK approach, it takes it down to 30 seconds, mm -hmm. if it's perfect first time. Uh, but if there has to be some uh, inter uh, operator intervention to, to tell it what, where it's gone wrong, but it will learn from that, um, it'll go up to 30 minutes. So watching five, five days. So hopefully I'll see more of that stuff in IBC okay. next year because that's taken out a very repetitive task and doing it a lot better, a lot quicker. Okay. Neil? Uh, IBC next year, I'd like to see the conference, but I don't know if I'll have time to. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think uh, one of the things I'd like by IBC next year, we'll stop asking the question, is IP happening? I think it would just be... We'll have something else to talk about. So I think to the industry to have normalised and it's clearly understood what projects are logically IP and SDI to the point where it's not even a, a topic of conversation anymore. I think that would be healthy. We need to move on. Uh, it, it works now. So let, let's solve the next problem. Uh, I think you know, we should be looking far more about uh, you know the the, the threat from Netflix and OTT and um, what's the threat, but what are the opportunities as well? Okay. I, I actually just quickly, did, does anybody know who what, who Netflix says their biggest competitor? Is they going after? Sleep. Anything when you're not sleeping. Any activity when you're not sleeping. Any activity. Yeah. They dominate your free time. So they're not worried about taking the broadcasters out. They they want to take anybody out that's consuming your time and you're not sleeping. Well, Amazon the same. Yeah. Well, Amazon's slightly different. So Amazon Prime is all about making you buy more stuff off Amazon, and that's yeah. their whole driver there. So there's yeah. a different strategy, but it's yeah. still scary. That we're we're worried about what's the threat to our traditional customer base. They're thinking way beyond that. But, 
it's almost an irrelevant. So what's our market going to look like in a few years? So we should be talking more about that rather than the next technology, I think. It'll be interesting to see who buys Netflix. Will it be Amazon or Apple? I bet it's an A. I think um, I think Neil's last point there. We're quite myopic in our industry. We look to the next um, the next thing that's in, in front of us, rather than having uh, a, a good old look at the the vision that's that we should be looking at of where our customers are. Creating that vision, I, I agree that IP things should be uh, done and gone. But going back to something we talked about earlier, the whole world of uh, Virtualization, I think, is going to be the, the the big one next year, simply because I think broadcasters will finally have the um, get the brain together to work out what exciting ways they could use that, and how they could make things a lot more efficient, and how that will then bring the new opportunities. I think, as a from a pure um, event perspective. I think there's a whole way in which IBC can change the the gourds that seem to be between the event that we as vendors attend and the conference. You know, eight nine years ago, I ran a, a small one-day uh, conference on audio loudness with the audio loudness summit in London. And what was fascinating back then was, I say back then, it's only eight nine years ago. It's not that long ago was that the debate that was taking place in the audience, on Twitter, on social media, about what the speaker was saying on the stage, and around Europe at the same time, was happening live. And we don't have the apps and the social platforms within the, the IBC world that are, that are focused on just that. And I think that's the sort of thing that, that they could really do to bridge that gap and to bring a connection between what's happening um, in the, let's say, the vision-oriented conference and the technical implementation side of the, the exhibition event. Okay. Awesome. I think the best way to get people talking in that respect is to extend the beach bar into Hall 7. Cheers to that. You know, I think everything will, will advance um, and you know, we will get our act even more together on IP um, and, uh, and AI as well. I think for me the, the largest leap there will be, um, I think to your point about virtualization, more times when you'll say, oh yeah, I suppose that doesn't need to be in hardware at all. Yes, it could be just scale. And, you know, time and time again, even though you think you've, you know, you've, you're, you're, you've got up to speed with the industry, then you suddenly realize, oh yeah, that people are ahead and they're thinking about you know, the ways in which to, to, um, to change things into software. And I, do, I think that's going to be the biggest gap between now and then. Does anybody have any views on that? You know, what's One word, microservices. Maybe. I think Games Engine just coming into graphics is going to be quite interesting as well going forward. It's, it's steadily grown. <laughs> it's become fairly well adopted this year. It looks like a continuation. So that's an interesting thing. The risk has been very myopic. Um, you mentioned the word earlier on, right at the very beginning, um, blockchain. Is that a tool in anybody's armory that they think they can see being utilised? Before, I bet it's, it's the buzzword next year. Yeah, yeah good one. Well, it'll, it'll be the buzzword for, for, for a little while. And as we said at the beginning, I think that buzz yeah. will build and there will be a, 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 a dot 
blockchain. Here, could you just give us a 30 second description on what blockchain is? Oh, that's the, probably the least technical person here. My understanding of blockchain is that it's, it's the, the way that, um, Neil, you're probably better versed this, so correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, you've got blocks of information, and each block has three pieces to it. One is the data that's contained in that block, user information, your name, your date of birth, your banking details, and all of that. And then the other two are basically timestamps. Um, one of them is a timestamp for that block. The other one is a timestamp for the previous block. So this block is connected to that one, this one is connected to this one, etc. And if you start mucking around with information in any one of those blocks, you've screwed the whole chain. And that's what makes it secure. And that's what makes it appealing to the likes of um, the distribution rights arena, where you can start to cut out the 30, 40, 50 <coughs> middlemen between content creator and rights distribution in a country because it just eats up a phenomenal amount of money. If you create a way in which you have an application that is uh, re reasonably uh, <coughs> cheap to make, reasonably easy to use and be distributed, and it is absolutely secure, that's where blockchain makes sense in that arena. Did I get that like? We're going to launch a uh, sort of cryptocurrency mining engine. <laughs> Just for charging the customers. I mean, the, the, the key is the key is that, that it's the security. And I'd love for, and I keep on looking for interesting blockchain applications on the kind of more technical side. But each time you look, they are on the distribution side, and that's yeah. quite right. Certainly, a good place to start. I think the two things to say is that the, the, the conference session on it that run by IBM, they said it just really comes down to trust and um, they're looking at ways to implement blockchain um, to make sure that the supply chain for broadcasters um, is, you know, is valid and secure and simpler. Um, um, but because you need time to, to do that security, you know, we can't add it to each frame of video or something, which would be really mm -hmm. great if we could. But um, we can't. Yeah. Okay. So, somebody explained it to me as metadata that's burnt in; it can't be changed. Okay. Yeah. So all, all the rest security. All right. Just before we finish, um, uh, we've got two events I, I'd like to announce. First of all, the Winter Ball, twenty-third of November. If you haven't booked your ticket, please do. It's at the um, Workfield Estate again, as for last year. Uh, and secondly, we've got our Christmas lecture uh, with John Watkinson on the 12th of December. I was with John earlier today trying to uh, convince him not to use the title he wants to use for his, his, his lecture. Um, but at the moment it's got the words philosophy, technology and faith in it. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you know a bit closer to the time what they've been for. It was a long conversation. Um, but uh, we will we will have a uh, look out for the emails because uh, that'll be our Christmas lecture, completely from his prize and red wine. Uh, it won't be at Pinson's Manor because Pinson's Manor is now closed. Um, so we're looking for a, a new venue and we'll let you know a bit closer to the time where that is. But uh, if you could just show your appreciation for our panel, please. Uh, Martin Clarkson. <laughs> Yeah, I did actually look up.
artificial intelligence and machine learning definition a while ago. Um, there were various, and um, fundamentally, I think it doesn't matter to probably anybody in this room because at the end of the day, it's computers making decisions in you know, a certain way, and whether they are aware of what they've decided and feed that back themselves, or whether we feed back, it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is, it's here to stay. It's here to stay across all verticals and all industries. So you know, in the same way as you know, cloud or just using the internet in order to achieve something, uh, nobody knew um, exactly what it would lead to. Um, but nonetheless, whatever industry you go into, it's been transformed in some way. And so the same thing can be true for AI. And um, we just need to work out where that is. Now, from my point of view, we can either automate things which are already possible or would be possible if they didn't need so many people. Um, so that's just getting that scale, making it quicker and efficient. And there's, there's valid reasons to do that, and it, it does add value. But I think the, the best differentiator is when uh, you use AI uh, to actually create something which wouldn't or otherwise be created. It's not, we don't have it now for lack of people, actually, you know, it's just because it wasn't possible. And the ex an example of that is in upscaling, downscaling of images, instead of using specific algorithms like SOS, you know, by Cubic, um, which have their own positives and, and negatives. If you use you know, machine learning, you can, you can teach it to not have some of the, the steps to spot artifacts, to get rid of artifacts to see curves and put curves in. So essentially you're changing the maths at that point. Um, it's, it's kind of dynamic and you can create um, you know, upscaled images much better than you would have otherwise. And, and it's companies like that who can get that kind of first move experience, first mover experience in machine learning, tuning it, using it, um, you know, their own version of it, who are, I think, really best set to start really disrupting mm -hmm. rather than some of the encoded manufacturers who are simply just doing a thousand things, seeing which options work nicely, and then that's your new encoder settings. Very valuable, but I don't think that's the disruptor that it would otherwise be. Um, we're very much heavily involved in the push production and play out arena, and in that area, it's a very deterministic field that relies on certainty. Um, you know, if something goes wrong with a commercial, Coca-Cola doesn't just not pay for the ad, they don't pay for the campaign. So it's a problematic thing in some ways in the delivery end because play out needs to be absolute. It, it can't take any chances. You yeah. can't risk putting a bit of code in there. But saying that, you know, touching to your point of, of how you can automate, I think there's a grey area between sophisticated automation based on um, a more sophisticated understanding of metadata and not just the metadata that's built into the content. So for example, we, we do systems where you can have channels running and if there happens to be accidentally gaps or shorter running programs than we're expected to be, then it will be programmed into the business rules to go and fetch this type of content. So if it's a, if it's a National Geographic type channel, it'll go and get polar bears rather than get, getting historical content. And it'll fill the gaps, and it'll it'll spread things out as as you set up those business rules. Is that machine learning? When you start to tie that to the data that then comes back from the broadcaster's um, own consumer data, and your systems start to learn how to adjust what type of content to put in on thematic channels, then that's a, a, an area we're exploring at the moment, which is really worthwhile. 
but again, that's that's relying very heavily on being certain about what you're actually doing, um, and that's the key in, in the field that we're working in. Okay. Yeah. So it's a technology, and right? I think it's a danger. Well, we do it all the time in this industry. We start with the technology, and we have a discussion about technology and what should we do with it, and what does it mean for us. For me, it's just another tool in the toolbox. I'd much rather be looking at what's happening in the industry, what, what problems do we need to solve, oh, and which of the tools in our toolbox will help us solve those problems. So whether it's automating a process that takes too many humans, okay, right, let's use that AI tool to address that problem. And, you know, arguably we should be talking about what are the problems out there, not what are the new technologies and where could we point them at. Uh, it's a bit back to front for me to start talking about AI and what does it mean. Um, there's a whole host of things I can see that we can use it for, sort of you know, proactively looking at sort of loading or when the system's going to fail, so preemptive maintenance. There's lots of people doing very intelligent sort of logging of content. Uh, I saw a really interesting application where people are teaching it different sports, so it will do automatic highlights. Oh, and there was the IBM Watson uh, coming to Wimbledon. The, the, there's, there's many applications, but I think start with an application. Have I think it'd be important to have knowledge about AI and its capabilities with inside your business. But then it's just one of the tools you bring to bear to solve the problem. I think. Martin. So <clears throat> yeah, I was. I'm not entirely clear of the difference between AI and machine learning, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I did read something that Google had got these two computers, I guess, to talk to each other. To talk to each other in, in English. But very, very quickly, they developed their own language. So they could pass information much quicker, which was completely indecipherable to any human observer listening mm. to it. So I think that possibly is artificial intelligence. Most things that we have um, are, is, um, we come across at the moment is machine learning, whether it's just one process with one result or multiple parallel different processes with multiple outputs being channeled into the result that you'd want. So Moorfield's Eye Hospital, when they're looking at uh, various eye defects like macular degeneration, normally have to have a scan looked at by the professor and they look at it and yet they've now got exactly the same success rate with machine learning, examining those same scans um, and slightly faster than the professor but of course they work all night, they don't go on summer holidays, Christmas is another day to machine learning um, and so I saw some stuff at IBC, um, we started to use that and uh, if you can take out repetitive tasks and I think it's a good thing. If you start getting false results from it, then clearly it's, it's not working. Yeah. And it is all about just giving loads and loads of repetitive data to a machine and kind of can see a pattern. And that's the argument for going to cloud, isn't it? Because you've got a massive amount of processing power and a massive amount of data all very close to each other. So it will make machine learning more, more efficient. Yeah. Yes, you've got to be very, very careful about those data sets. Mm -hmm. Really careful. Yes. Because garbage in, garbage out is really, really important with any of this stuff. Yeah. You know, and a human 
can discard oddities, which machines can't yet necessarily do. And I think um, the difference, possibly at the moment, between machine learning and artificial intelligence is that the artificial intelligences are not telling us that they're there. I think, I mean, you know, the, the point about, about that, that is that it is difficult, but on the other hand, I think people who start now and who are refining and getting experience in, in using yeah. machine learning algorithms and, and teaching them essentially are those people who are going to be able to more successfully yeah. you know, push forward in that. But also there's, um, there's a project recently finished to create um, on-premise um, machine learning um, specific to the media field. Um, and that's because it, do you want to spend all your time and money teaching someone else's algorithm something which is based upon your archives? And effectively, um, it is great using the cloud, but if you're trying to make sense of something which is your property and your rights, um, particularly if it's a large back catalogue, then there's a lot of common sense in keeping that actually on-premise. Okay. Um, and uh, finally, for uh, next year, um, to have to have panelists, what, uh, what do you expect to see in IBC next year? And, and what, are the, um, what are the opportunities for innovators? Um, Martin? Well, I'm going back to machine learning again, because one of the best things I saw in IBC this year, and I think it will um, continue, was um, the Japanese broadcaster Nippon Hozo Kyokai NHK. They had an automatic colorization technology for monochrome video using AI slash deep learning. And um, as I say, I used to work for NHK, and even back in the 80s, they were, they were innovating all the time, as they, as they do as they do the BBC here. So, um, so what they did is they, like Peter Jackson at Weta, just come out with his first World War colorized um, movie. So how that was colorized, I don't know. I suspect that there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> compositors involved, possibly. Um, but, but also some, some clever technology bound to have done. But with NHK, the, the, <clears throat> sorry, I've written this down just so I can get it straight. The artificial intelligence learning typically, so you get the monochrome video, which is most times a film scan of, of uh, black and white film. And then the artificial intelligence learns typical colours of objects and they have these three what they call neural networks. One does the colour estimation of what it should be. The other does the colour correction of what it, what it actually is going to end up as. And then they have what they call colour propagation where you might just adjust the colour of one object in one frame and it'll go back and, for and, and forward and find that object no matter how it's been, um, how it's changed in its shape or, or whatever, or human face. And, and colour it the same, or, or do the colour correction the same, because what, hand painting won't do, you'll never get the same consistency, and that's why you get a lot of flicker, and it's albeit disappointing, although from a long time ago. And so I'd, I'd like to see some of those, some of those things uh, progress. I mean, the, and the statistics was five seconds of monochrome video will take several days by conventional methods to to, to do five seconds, to colourise five seconds of conventional video. Whereas um, using the NHK approach, it takes it down to 30 seconds mm -hmm. if it's perfect first time. 
Uh, but if there has to be some uh, inter uh, operator intervention to, to tell it what, where it's gone wrong, but it will learn from that, um, it'll go up to 30 minutes. So that's from five, five days. So hopefully I'll see more of that stuff in IBC okay. next year, because that's taken out a very repetitive task and doing it a lot better, a lot quicker. Thank you. Neil? Uh, IBC next year, I'd like to see the conference, but I doubt if I'll have time to. <laughs> so, um, I think uh, one of the things I'd like by IBC next year, we'll stop asking the question, is IP happening? I think it would just be we'll have something else to talk about. So I think to the industry to have normalised and it's clearly understood what projects are logically IP and what SDI to the point where it's not even a, a topic of conversation anymore. I think that would be healthy. We need to move on. Uh, it, it works now. So let, let's solve the next problem. And I, I think you know, we should be looking far more about uh, you know the the, the threat from Netflix and OTT and um, what's the threat, but what are the opportunities as well? Okay. I, I actually just quickly, did, does anybody know who what who Netflix says their biggest competitor? Is they going after? Sleep. Anything when you're not sleeping. Any activity when you're not sleeping. Any activity. Yeah. They they dominate your free time. So they're not worried about taking the broadcasters out. They don't want to take anybody out that's consuming your time when you're not sleeping. Well, Amazon the same. Yeah. Well, Amazon's slightly different. So Amazon Prime is all about making you buy more stuff off Amazon, and that's yeah. their whole driver there. So there's yeah. a different strategy, but it's yeah. still scary. That we're we're worried about what's the threat to our traditional customer base. They're thinking way beyond that. But it's almost been irrelevant. So. What's our market going to look like in a few years? So we should be talking more about that rather than the next technology. I think. It'll be interesting to see who buys Netflix. Will it be Amazon or Apple? I bet it's an A. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cash. Three I think um, I think Neil's last point there. We're quite myopic in our industry. We look to the next um, the next thing that's in, in front of us rather than having a, a, a good old look at the, the vision that's, that we should be looking at of where our customers are creating that vision. I, I agree that IP things should be uh, done and gone, but going back to something we talked about earlier, the whole world of uh, virtualization, I think, is going to be the, the, the big one next year, simply because I think broadcasters will finally have the, um, get the brain together to work out what exciting ways they could use that and how they could make things a lot more efficient and how that will then bring the new opportunities. I think as a from a pure um, event perspective, I think there's a whole way in which IBC can change the the gourds that seem to be between the event that we as vendors attend and the conference. You know, eight, nine years ago I ran a, a small one day uh, conference on audio loudness, with the audio loudness summit in London. And what was fascinating back then was, I'd say back then, it's only eight years ago, it's not that long ago, was that the debate that was taking place in the audience on Twitter, on social media, about what the speaker was saying on the stage and around Europe at the same time mm. was happening live. 
and we don't have the apps and the social platforms within the, the IBC world that are that are focused on just that. And I think that's the sort of thing that, that they could really do to bridge that gap and to bring a connection between what's happening and in the, let's say, the vision-oriented conference and the technical implementation side of the, the exhibition event. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think the best way to get people talking in that respect is to extend the beach bar into Hall 7. Cheers to that. You know, I think everything will, will advance um, and, you know, we will get our acts even more together on IP um, and, uh, and AI as well. I think, for me, the, the largest leap there will be, um, I think to your point about virtualization, more times when you'll say, oh yeah, I suppose that doesn't need to be in hardware at all. Yes, it could be just scale. And, you know, time and time again, even though you think you're... You're, you're, you've got up to speed with the industry, then you suddenly realise, oh yeah, that people are ahead and they're thinking about like, the ways in which to to um, to change things into software. And I, do, I think that's going to be the biggest gap between now and then. Right. Does anybody have any views on that? Sure? One word: microservices. Microservices. Mm. Mm. Maybe. So I think games engine is coming into graphics is going to be quite interesting. It's steadily grown, <laughs> become fairly well adopted this year. It looks like a continuation. So that's an interesting. Thing. Okay. Yeah. It's a risk of being very myopic. Um, you mentioned the word earlier on, right at the very beginning, um, blockchain. Oh, it's all in anybody's armory that they think they can see being utilised. Yeah. I, bet, I, bet, I bet it's, it's the buzzword next year. Yeah, yeah it could well be. Already. It'll be the buzzword for, for, for a little while. And as we said at the beginning, I think that buzz yeah. will build and there will be a, 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 a dot blockchain. Could <laughs> you just give us a 30 second description on what blockchain is? Oh, that's the, probably the least technical person here. My understanding of blockchain is that it's, it's the, the way that, um, Neil, you're probably better versed in this, so correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, you've got blocks of information, and each block has three pieces to it. One is the data that's contained in that block, user information, your name, your date of birth, your banking details, and all of that. And then the other two are basically timestamps. Um, one of them is a timestamp for that block. The other one is a timestamp for the previous block. So this block is connected to that one. This one is connected to this one, etc. And if you start mucking around with information in any one of those blocks, you've screwed the whole chain. And that's what makes it secure. And that's what makes it appealing to the likes of um, the distribution rights arena, where you can start to cut out the 30, 40, 50 <coughs> middlemen between content creator and rights distribution in a country, because it just eats up a phenomenal amount of money. If you create a way in which you have an application that is uh, reasonably uh, cheap to make, reasonably easy to use and be distributed, and it is absolutely secure. That's where blockchain makes sense in that arena. Did I get my luck? We're going to launch a uh, sort of cryptocurrency mining engine. <laughs> Just for charging the customers. I mean, the, the, the key is the key is that the, it's the security. And I'd love it for, and I keep on looking for interesting blockchain applications on the kind of more technical side. But each time you look, they are on the distribution side, and that's quite right. Certainly, a good place to start. 
I mean, the two things to say is that the, the, the conference um, session on it that run by IBM, they said it just really comes down to trust and um, they're looking at ways to implement blockchain um, to make sure that the supply chain for broadcasters um, is, you know, is valid and secure and simpler. Um, um, but because you need time to, to do that security, you know, we can't add it to each frame of video or something, which would be really mm -hmm. great if we could. But um, you can't. Yeah. Okay. So, somebody explained it to me as metadata that's burnt in; it can't be changed. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So all all around security. All right. Just before we finish, um, uh, we've got two events I, I'd like to announce. First of all, the Winter Ball, twenty third of November. If you haven't booked your ticket, please do. It's at the um, Workfield Estate again, as for last year. Uh, and secondly, we've got our Christmas lecture uh, with John Watkinson on the 12th of December. I was with John earlier today trying to uh, convince him not to use the title he wants to use for his, his, his lecture. Um, but at the moment, it's got the words philosophy, technology, and faith in it. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you know a bit closer to the time what they've been for. It was a long conversation. Um, but uh, we will we will have a uh, look out for the emails because uh, that'll be our Christmas lecture, completely with mince pies and red wine. Uh, it won't be at Pinson's Manor because Pinson's Manor is now closed. Um, so we're looking for a, a new venue and we'll let you know a closer to time where that is. But uh, if you could just show your appreciation for our panel, please. Uh, Martin Clapton. <laughs> Thank you.